anyone tell you what you can't do. You're the captain of your soul, the master of your fate. This is Tall Hungry Girl Talks, a podcast about feeding your growth. Follow along at tallhungrygirl.com. Okay, welcome to another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Today we are talking about sleep. All the things that you should probably know about sleep but don't and how important it is for your life. Uh, Today I am interviewing Dr. Joe Zelk. He is a double board certified doctor in behavioral sleep medicine. He is a nationally known speaker on sleep disorders and obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. He has been an, an invited expert for sleep disorder related articles for the Nurse Practitioner Journal of the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners and other periodicals. He's lectured to dental sleep medicine providers nationally on home sleep testing protocols and oral appliance therapy for the treatment of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. Welcome, thank you so much. Thank you, this is great. Yes, it's, it's awesome to have you here and this is such a relevant topic, especially during a pandemic when it seems like all of us would be getting amazing sleep because we're home, but I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, <laughs> it's exactly the opposite, but you know, we all assume it's going to be that way. You know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So I need you to answer this question for me. I feel like this is the most important question of all. How sure. many hours of sleep are we supposed to be getting a night? I require eight and a half to nine. I love sleep. But I know that so many people say they only need six. What is the number that we need? And does it change based on your age? Oh, that's a great question. And it's the million dollar question, really. Um, If you go back um, anthropologically, uh, only until very recently were we able to manipulate our environment enough to affect our ability to stay awake, meaning light, artificial light sources and media. So even go back a hundred years, the average industrialized human would get almost nine and a half hours sleep. The average sleeper. So we're talking- That makes me feel so much better about the amount of sleep that I require. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so literally, you know, within a century, a little over a century, we've changed, you know, a millennia or in two or three or four, of sleep requirements. And so now what we're really asking is, is what can we get by in a modern society? You know, So physiologically, I think that's waiting to be borne out by the data, right? We talked about a moment ago about all the Im- immunological impacts and cardiovascular impacts and anxiety and stress and all these other uh, physiologic processes that, are, that, that basically rely on adequate sleep and sleep duration as well as sleep quality. So if you go back just a very short period of time in the evolution of, of mankind and womankind, um, it's only been about a century since we've been trying to compress this into such a small amount. And so the average sleeper in 1950s would be about eight and a half hours. In the 1970s, it was uh, almost eight hours, seven and a half hours. And then uh, from the late 90s to the 2000s, the average sleep is about six and three quarters hours. So within 100 years, we've, we've dropped our sleep amount that we allow ourselves to obtain by a third. Wow. That's incredible. Imagine only breathing a third of the breaths per minute. Imagine eating only a third of the calories that you're hungry for. You know, um, you know. Imagine, you know. Th- these are these are things that we need to function uh, and and to survive. And actually, sleep is considered by the CDC um, a vital sign of health. And so, ultimately, most people cannot get by physiologically for the long term for health. And this is a long answer to a very small question, really. Um, the average person should be shooting for about seven and a half to eight and a half hours in bed. And if you're a normal sleeper, you'll sleep about 85% of that time. So if you're in bed for eight and a half, you're probably sleeping for seven and a half. If you're in bed for eight hours, you're probably sleeping just over seven hours. So no one should be in bed for like six hours or seven hours because you're always getting insufficient sleep. Yeah. So where did this like if we were getting nine and a half hours or that, you know, like a hundred years ago or so, where did this eight number come from? 
or is, is it like an American culture thing? And do other cultures get more sleep than Americans? Do you know that? That would be, you know, <laughs> I think it's fairly universal of okay. what the amounts of sleep you have if you're not in an industrialized um, setting. Remember, like like shift work or night shift work never was around except for you're unless you're that rare, you know, um, sentry looking at, you know, you know, uh, during night shift, it, it was very rare. Most people would never, ever, ever stay up at nighttime until about World War II when they needed 24-hour shifts to build stuff to win World War II, right? So night shift work was never even a thing until that period of time, right? So, so it depends on your industrial setting here, but most folks, if they're living kind of a normal ancestral time frame, they're going to be shooting for about nine, nine and a half hours, depending on where you're at on the earth, you know, on the, um, the uh, distance from the equator, because the equator has a very normalized sort of uh, day. And then as you go more toward the poles, you have much, much shorter days during the winter and much, much longer days during the summer. So that can change as well. So it's fairly typical that just about, I would say nine hours is a good average. Because a lot of folks didn't have a lot of money for, you know, candles or kerosene or, you know, artificial light sources to help you do things when it's dark at night. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, so now I can tell my friends when they make fun of me for how much I sleep <laughs> that you told me that it's okay, that I'm getting. Totally okay. I'm proud of you for outing <laughs> yourself as a long sleeper. You're actually a normal sleeper. Okay. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. So what are the different stages and phases of sleep? Cause I know that the brain goes through many different processes Absolutely. So, so during sleep, the brain is about 20%, um, it needs about 20% less energy to function, right? So it's very, very important to give your brain, because your, your brain is like, you know, a big part of your metabolism, and you have to wind it down. And otherwise, you'll just wear yourself out because the brain takes so much excess energy for the size of it on your body. So, um, so there's a couple things that you grade sleep as is there's the sleep amount there is the consolidation of sleep so how much are you disrupted or is there a lot of noise around you or things poking you at night um, are there things making you wake up at night like a, you know someone making noise next to you um, or uh, and, and of course then there comes into the conversation sleep stages so as you fall asleep you go through a kind of a stair step of stages and um, they, they move pretty much in every 60 to 90 minute cycles and you start off in, in, in being awake for typically 15 to 20 minutes is a normal time to take to fall asleep. So you shouldn't be falling asleep in a minute. If you're falling asleep in a minute, you've got some sleep pathology you're dealing with, right? Some unmet uh, sleep need. So if you lie down for bed, you should take about 15, 20 minutes to be able to fall asleep. And that's called sleep onset latency. And then you spend a very short period of time going through non-REM stage one. And so there's three stages of non-REM, stage one, two, and three. Um, stage two is where you spend most of your night uh, in sleep. It's called intermediate sleep. And stage three used to be three, four, and essentially it's slow wave sleep. Your brain waves get very large and very slow. Uh, it's very hard to wake up. You get a lot of um, body protection sort of phenomenon going on like growth hormone surges at that time your liver's really active metabolizing you know a lot of your yeah, your lipids and and, and whatnot and uh, it, you're repairing muscle and and different injuries throughout the night and you're getting a, a good beginning of production in your hormones uh testosterone a lot of sex hormones are made uh, around that time frame and that's within about the first hour or two of of the night and then you get a little peak of REM sleep and then every 90 minutes or so, you'll get a little bit longer and longer chunk of REM, and you'll be going between stage two and, and REM throughout the, the latter part of the night. That's why you can't just get by with four hours of perfect sleep, because if you do, you'll miss out on most of your REM sleep, because most of your REM sleep is that last hour of the night. So 25% of your night should be REM, about 15% to 20% of your night should be slow wave sleep, and the rest should be mostly non-REM sleep, stage two. Um, and of course, how much you're disrupting that sleep is very important. So that, that was going to, that leads me to my next question is if you are disrupted during a critical phase of sleep, like REM or something like that, or are waking up two hours early, 
does that have more of an impact than maybe waking up during um, uh, another stage? Like, does it have an exponential impact? You know, your brain's on a circadian rhythm. So the fancy little part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the part that's kind of coordinating your 24-hour cycle, it's got a pretty good idea of what it's got planned for you for that night, right? Mm. So if you're like, if someone something disrupts you out of REM sleep, you're probably going to stay on that same trajectory throughout the night, unless it's something very scary, like a loud noise in the night or someone crashes the window or something stressful. If you have a slight awakening, we're supposed to wake up probably two to three times a night normally, just to kind of wake up, post is clear, head, you know, head down again. You're supposed to have those. That's why you go down deep and you come up light throughout the night because you have to have that. Otherwise you would have been, you know, dead meat, you know, back in the evolutionary days. So (laughs) that, that makes sense. Okay. (laughs) Maybe that's why people like turn in their sleep. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're sleeping really hard and you're like, oh, my shoulder's really sore. Well, if you've been lying on that for five hours, you probably, you know. Yeah. Um, So what do you think, you know, you, you mentioned the question of it should take you like 15 minutes to go to sleep. People, it's interesting that you say that people that fall asleep immediately, I'm always like, what is wrong, wrong with you? And it turns out it sounds like there's something wrong with you. But, um, for, you know, with all the technology that we have, what is that doing to us and our ability to go to sleep? I like, I have a TV in my room and I wish I didn't. I've, I've set the sleep timer and I fall asleep to TV. Mm-hmm. It's like my gift to myself at the end of the night. Right. Um, but I know that when I don't fall asleep with the TV on, I sleep a lot better. What is the, um, what are those electronics doing to our brain? How, what is the impact on sleep? Yeah. So there's some very well studied aspects of that and some really kind of on the edge of science. We don't haven't really validated it yet other aspects, but the first thing that we do know is that blue light wavelength or very bright white, you know, LED sort of uh, light sources will suppress melatonin secretion. So it's great for someone who wants to give themselves a little boost in the morning because you have that nice, bright, clear blue light in the morning. You want that in the morning because it gives you this stimulus to the, um, the circadian clock in your brain uh, to say, wow, this is morning time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really make sure that we know exactly this is morning and then I'll be totally ready for when it's night because it has to start, you know, that whole clock. So at nighttime, if you're getting exposed to a lot of bright LED light, then that can basically suppress the natural ability to fall asleep. And melatonin is extremely important. It has to be secreted at a certain time frame. Otherwise, it'll be really hard to both get to sleep and stay asleep throughout the night. Um, What's also very interesting is the amount of light, um, the strength of the light, right? So how bright is it? And your average light source in a home might be about 100 or greater lux you probably need less than 80 lux if you don't want that to also affect your ability to fall asleep physiologically. We call these zeitgebers. Basically, they're, um, they're like cues, uh, environmental cues of whether you should be awake or asleep. So if you're socially interacting, that's a zeitgeber that kind of gets you in, in, in line with, with, hey, I should be awake. I should be interacting. Uh, if you're eating a meal, that's also your body saying, hey, I should be actually active and functioning here, not sleeping and resting. And remember, digestion takes a ton of energy, a ton of resources. So if you're eating right before bed, that's not sleep. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a way. That, that actually, that was going to be one of my questions is that how, how, like, I, you know, they, they've said, you know, for dieting purpose or whatever, you're not supposed to eat a certain amount of time before bed. I don't really care about that stuff. I want to know how it impacts sleep. And, and two people will say, Oh, you know, if you have a crazy dream, Oh, did you eat right before sleep? That seems to be a common thought that people feel like eating right before sleep impacts your dreams and makes you have um, kind of crazy dreams. Is, is there a connection there? It might make you more arousable. Uh, okay. Most of the time, you don't remember much of your dreams until the latter half of the night. And that's very, that's very interesting about dream sleep is unless you wake up right after that dream, you won't remember it. 
So they're screaming throughout the night, but you don't remember those first, you know, three or four intervals typically, unless you woke up out of it, you know, in a cold sweat and it's very disturbing. Most of them will be that last little part of the dream that you had, you know, the, the 15 minutes before you woke up. And then if you didn't really focus on it, you, you quickly forget it and move on, you know. So, so it's just a sign that there's a lot of disruption and you're more, uh, you know, rousable or able to be awake and, and disrupted. So that dream remembrance is really just them remembering that they're disrupted, really. And don't forget, if you sleep um, an extra half an hour, that's about the same amount of calories burned as exercising for a full hour. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're wow. going to burn more <laughs> calories by having that extra half hour sleep in than by depriving it. There's been some really interesting research on rat models, and they won't do them in, in, in humans, you know, voluntarily, but I'm sure we're all doing it to ourselves every day. But if you deprive a rat or a mouse even a certain amount of sleep for X number of days, I think it's like only let them sleep for about the equivalent of a human for four hours for about five days their basal metabolic rate will permanently reduce by 20%, meaning they will burn 20% less calories from that point on. Yeah. So that is just one of the many reasons why we shouldn't be depriving ourselves of sleep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In, in a world that we have right now, we are so bombarded with hypercalorie foods and all these cues from advertising and everything. It's in our, it's in our genes to say, I need that now. And then we get fooled into thinking that this sort of flavored food is actually normal when it's literally like five times more calorie dense than what we were ever supposed to be used to, right? And then you tack law on sleep deprivation and we're literally 20% hungrier if you don't get enough sleep. So you're also hungrier if you're not getting the adequate amount of sleep. Mm -hmm. It's not fun. No, not at all. So going back to the when you should eat, when, like if you're, go say I'm going to go to bed at 10, Mm -hmm. I eat early because I, um, I don't know, I, I start my day early and so I eat breakfast early and so I end up being, I you usually eat around five. Um, but I know people that eat dinner around eight or nine, certain mm -hmm. cultures, it seems like a lot of European cultures eat dinner later. What time or how many hours before you go to bed should you be eating? Well, in a perfect world, you should be about three hours minimum before bedtime, so you don't have a big full belly. Um, also, what you have to be cognizant of is the amount of cal caloric intake. So typically, your bigger meal should be morning and lunch and a small little meal you know, in the evening. You should not be packing everything later in, at nighttime. Your, your immune system, uh, your actually your digestive system, I'm sorry, uh, is not made to digest things later in the nighttime. And remember, we talked about the 24-hour cycle. Well, uh, down in Southern California, they've done a lot of research on circadian rhythms of different organ systems, not just the brain, but say the liver and the heart and the pancreas and different aspects of your body. And it turns out that you know eating earlier and midday, the majority of your calories, even if they're the same exact calories, you will lose weight. Um, compared to someone who ate the same exact calories but waited until later in the evening or also kind of dabbled throughout the whole day. So if you eat early, earlier in the morning and then during the lunchtime and then, and then late in the evening and you spread that out over that whole period of time, you're going to gain weight on the same exact food than someone who kind of shrinks their, their, their digestive cycle a little bit. And that's something called um, time-restricted eating. So if you eat within a window of time, not reducing your calories, just reducing your intervals of eating by to about eight to 10 hours, you will also feel like your body's functioning more like it should. Yeah. Because like I said, you know, digestion's a lot of work and sometimes we don't do it all that great. I love looking back to that one movie with Lucille Ball where she's in front of the conveyor belt and she's like, the first of all, this is like a super easy job. I just put one can on, one can on, and all of a sudden it starts speeding up and the cans start going everywhere and, and she can't keep up with it. Well, that's what it's like eating late at nighttime or eating all day long. It's just your body will just not make, not deal with it and shove it wherever it can. Yeah. Work, you know? My nutritionist actually told me the same thing. She said to eat whole meals and like condense the window in which I'm eating. I can't do intermittent fasting, but so I've tried doing that. And it's actually like, I've lost, you know, a couple pounds and it, I do feel like I'm having like 
better sleep and less blood sugar kind of fluctuations and stuff like that. So. Well, and you'll get more used to it too, because most times when we're eating, we're just dehydrated. Yeah. You know, we're yes. not we're not hungry. We need to drink more. You yes. get more fluids in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that brings me to my next question is how does alcohol impact sleep? A lot of people tell me that alcohol helps them go to sleep but it disrupts my sleep. Like, I feel like it can make you like pass out, you know, like, you know, you think of a college kid that's drank too much or something like that. But I understand that disruptions happen later in the sleep cycle when the liver enzymes are metabolizing alcohol. Can you tell me more about this? And if you are going to drink, how many hours before bed it is recommended? Sure, sure. sure. So, so, um, Alcohol affects the same receptors in the brain. They're, they're called GABAergic receptors in the brain, and they, they cause the whole brain to kind of quiet down, and it affects many different parts of the brain. And the brain has like, you know, over 12 different neurotransmitters that interact with between maintaining sleep and wake. And the problem with alcohol is it's essentially the same as a sedative, which is artificial you know, loss of consciousness. It's not you going through a natural restorative sleeping process, right? You're unconscious, you don't remember that stuff, but you're not sleeping any better. It's not giving you REM sleep or deep sleep. It's actually causing more disruptions. So what it will do is it'll make you, it's, an, it's a, it's a um, nervous system depressant. So it will kind of make you more drowsy and sedated and then you'll go unconscious essentially but it won't improve your sleep quality whatsoever. It actually worsens it because it will suppress uh, slow wave sleep. And what happens is, is with alcohol, it'll also metabolize actually fairly quickly. So for every serving you have, it gets out of your system within about an hour and a half. And so what happens is you get this hyper, you know, uh, artificial sleepiness, and then it's out of your system about halfway through your sleep cycle. Now you're hyper arousable. Yeah. Right. And so you're hyper arousable and now you're like awake and you go, now what? You know, so now you're, you've, you've been relying on, a, on an artificial sedative and not relying on the, you know, getting to the root cause. And unfortunately, alcohol is the most commonly used sleep aid in the United States. None of it is ever prescribed. But, but it's, it's the most commonly used one. I can imagine that no doctor is instructing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. take a couple of shots of whiskey. Back in the day, they would, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but that's the challenge. And also, we don't want to gloss over the fact that sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea is extremely prevalent. It's almost 90% undiagnosed. Um, we don't realize it for many, many years. And, from when it starts until it's actually bad enough to say, ouch, there's something going on. And if you have alcohol or any sort of sedative near bedtime, it will actually reduce your ability to wake up to normal stimuli. So if someone's gonna try to, you know, you know, try to wake you up and jostle you, if you're sedated, you won't be able to respond to that and get out of that house during that fire. Well, the same thing happens whenever you're having apnea events is your throat closes, it gets sucked closed, and then you need to be able to respond to that so you can get breathing again. And so someone has sleep apnea might have, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 times an hour where their brain, where their throat closes and their brain has to wake up enough to, to get them breathing again. Well, if you're sedating that, then they'll actually suffocate longer and longer. And that's where they end up having the heart attacks and strokes and stuff. Oh gosh. Okay. So what causes sleep apnea? Like people often associate it with being overweight, but I have mild sleep apnea as I discovered through two different sleep studies. Um, and I'm not overweight. Um, so what happens, you just talked a little bit about it, but can you get, go a little bit more in depth about what happens to the body? What causes it? Sure. Sure. So, um, I like, I like to always go back to this too, is, is sleep apnea such a confusing word. It's almost like yoga. We've all heard of it, but not a lot of us can actually describe it effectively. Well, sleep apnea is the same way. It's, it's, it's apnea, as they say, fancy word of saying suffocating, right? Um. And you can be able to suffocate. Yes, exactly. It's sleep I have suffocation. sleep suffocation. It's mild, yes. though. <laughs> it's mild suffocation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I always, I always put that in front of mild suffocation. It's like still an issue, right? So, um, and, and I have a very mild case. It's called upper areas resistance. It's not quite apnea, but it's like uh, breathing through a coffee straw. So if you breathe through a coffee straw, try it. It's like a lot of work. You're pulling really hard to get past a little tightened throat and then, and then blowing out and your oxygen levels stay normal, but it's a lot of work and that can be just as disruptive. 
And, um, and that's because I, I was always kind of a mouth breather, allergic kid, you know, ear problems, tonsil problems, allergies, you know, poor kid in Florida, probably a moldy house. And that gave me kind of a longer facial type. So what we're, we need to address is two things that are fairly modern issues. The first one is a lot of facial types are getting longer and, and skinnier because um, foods are softer, uh, everyone's gotta get out there and be working, it can't just be one person working, a lot of working mothers are out there, and um, lactation is very, very important for facial development, so breastfeeding is a very strong and vigorous exercise for babies. Oh. And it's good nutrition, but more importantly, it makes the upper jaw develop appropriately, so you have room for your teeth to come in straight. I never also, knew this. Really <laughs> cool stuff. Also, uh, soft baby foods are mushy and they don't help the baby kind of develop any of the muscles of mastication. Um, uh, bottles are very convenient. They were great for failure to thrive kids when it was first invented, but they're so smushy and wimpy. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like keg, you know, uh, uh, what do you call this when you? Beer bonging? Beer bonging, there you go. <laughs> It's like, it's like a beer bong, you know, okay. there's no work to it. Yes. Um, and of course, then you add on the fact that there's a lot more allergic children out there. And if your facial types already small, whatever structures are supposed to be there are going to be kind of a little bit more crammed in. So the tonsils are closer, the nasal passages are smaller. So if there's any little bit of inflammation, those will get more plugged up more easily. And then you end up becoming more of a mouth breather, especially at nighttime. And if you're mouth breathing, your tongue can't sit in the roof of the mouth to spread the arches out, right? So how many kids are getting orthodontia nowadays? Like 90% of children in the US would benefit from some sort of orthodontia. That's not normal, okay? That's not normal at all. Out of all the mammals in creation, there's only one mammal, well, there's a couple because they've been domesticated also, but um, only humans are the ones dealing with malocclusion and crooked teeth because we've affected our facial development in such a short period of time. Wow. So if you have less arch development and you have crowded teeth, you have also crowded back throat, right? So you and I are not dealing with obesity, but we are dealing with smaller airways, right? So we're probably going to be in the milder category, hopefully, you know, but almost a quarter of children nowadays have sleep apnea and almost none of them have been diagnosed. So um, when you add on obesity, what happens is after we pass a certain amount of um, adipose tissue, we're all born with about the same amount of fat tissue, but as we get heavier, those fat cells get bigger, right? And they're, they're placed in certain spots genetically and everyone a little bit differently. We all have a couple of little spots here, the tongue's marbled a little bit. And so as we get bigger, our tongue also gets bigger, okay? Our neck gets, gets narrower because it's getting bigger, so it's compressing on there. So now the back of your throat and your tongue are that much closer to it. So now as we get bigger, our tongue gets bigger and our air's more, airway's more collapsible. So the same person that's say my weight, um, uh, I would have like a mild case. And if I were to gain like 15 pounds, it might go to a moderate case. If I gain another 15 pounds or a total of 35 pounds, that could actually make my apnea severe, right? So as our weight gains, our tongue gets bigger and there's only so much space in the back of the throat. So after you hit a certain weight point, your tongue is so collapsible that you are so severe, you're never resting. Even though you're unconscious and you're constantly tired and you're fatigued and overwhelmed, your oxygen levels are dropping, your adrenal levels are raising, and you're not breathing when you're sleeping. So you're, it's kind of a really vicious cycle. So I always, 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 if someone's got any weight issues or they're not feeling rested, I always have them look at the breathing first tackle it so now all of a sudden they can feel rested and get energetic and their metabolism gets better and now they can start adding you know more energy to that effort to try to get like exercise and yeah because it's hard to exercise when you're exhausted all the time and have no energy absolutely you're not yeah. gonna you're not gonna i'm a very common sense guy you know i do a lot of what i can do but i don't overdo it you know i'm not the marathon runner i'm not gonna go five yeah. day fast you know yeah <laughs> yes, I'm with you on that. Um, so are there exercises like I got, I, I read online, you know, when I was dealing with my sleep apnea, because I, I just cannot do a CPAP. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got a mouth guard and couldn't do that either. The, it goes like on the top and bottom and kind of makes your jaw go forward. Sure. Um, and so I got this like 
I can't, it's some Australian, I don't know, musical thing. <laughs> oh, the didgeridoo. Yes, a didgeridoo. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have it in the corner of my house. I've never learned how to play it, but I heard that it helps with sleep apnea. And so, I mean, I, I don't know whether that's true. You could probably tell me that, but are there throat exercises or breathing exercises or something that you can do to strengthen your, the muscles in your throat to reduce apnea? Yeah. The, the, the most important exercise is some sort of cardiovascular exercise, right? So if we're walking or doing something small for acute, if you accumulate about maybe 20 minutes of some level of exercise, I don't have a gym membership, but I have a pull-up bar. I've got some weights and I'll do some walking. Um, I do some, I speckle stuff throughout the day. So it accumulates. That's the most important thing, actively doing some level of body movement because that will increase your need for sleep. We call that process S, where sleep process, where you just, you have that drive to want to sleep and repair. So that's the first and foremost, right? And if you've got a really sort of like stuck in the house or deal, find ways of being active in, in, the, um, in, in, the, in the room, you know, um, body weight squats, squatting, you know, 20 times, you know, 10 times a day. It's super simple, but you'll notice it makes a difference. So if you want to do airway or muscular, um, exercises to tone the throat they're actually just got fda approval a device called excite osa and what it is it's a little horseshoe type device and it goes in the mouth and it's like a little tens unit you know you see all those those infomercials with a little belt around the belly that tends you yeah tummy. Well, well, this one actually has some research on it, and what it does is most of the um, muscle that collapses is here. And if you look at the below the chin, that's actually your tongue base, right? Uh huh. So that's what's collapsing here. So if you put a little horseshoe in the mouth, twenty minutes a day, um, it will actually cause a muscle the muscle to be toned enough and improve the endurance that you could actually reduce sleep apnea in mild patients. Um, there's also something called myofunctional therapy. And that's a big push in dentistry right now. So instead of just lining the teeth up, a lot of dentists are looking at arch development to get the teeth straight. And they'll work closely with a myofunctional therapist. And this myofunctional therapist does a couple things. First, they're focusing on nasal breathing because if your nose doesn't work, you can't have good tongue posture because you're constantly mouth breathing. You know, The second thing is, is your actual skeletal posture. If your body's hunched over like this and you're on your, yeah. your iPhone or you're on your iPad, you're going to have this sort of forward head posture there and that's going to make things go the wrong way so we have to focus on sort of posture in general and then we have to focus on tongue posture and there's a very simple thing that that you you say in your mind if you say mouth closed teeth lightly touching tongue pressed in the roof in the roof of your mouth if you just do that whenever you're at the computer or watching tv or on your ipad if you just do that you know several times a day you're actually reinforcing that habit to keep the tongue in the roof of the mouth and feel that pressure of your tongue in the I'm roof of your mouth. If you, <laughs> and if you do that, over time, that tongue will get stronger and that will actually improve things. And it gets rid of that waddle too. Yeah. So, so most of us, our tongue's down here low. We don't pay attention. But if you press it up there, watch this. Mm, okay. Mm, jaw. So you know, you're, jaw. You're supposed to, for because most people will be listening to this instead of mm -hmm. watching it. Mm -hmm. Um, although it'll be on my website as well, but so you're supposed to press with a little bit of force, your tongue to the roof of your mouth. That's okay. right. The tip of your tongue should be right behind your front two incisors and the rest of the tongue should be pressed on as much of the palate as possible, uh, in a gentle sort of pressure and let the teeth lightly touch together. So you don't have your tongue kind of squishing out between the teeth and that'll keep all the pressure where it should be in the roof of the mouth. And if you can't do that, it's probably because you're used to having the tongue kind of sitting down low or maybe you're not a great nasal breather and then you have to start working on that progressively i'm a lifelong mouth breather and it was freaky the first person told someone told me to mouth tape i'm like oh you're crazy um but over time you'll develop a habit you'll 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 understand that as you breathe through the nose actually after several minutes the nose actually starts to open up on its own even if you're okay. not a great nasal breather and also, I use little nasal strips at nighttime, little nasal dilators uh, to improve my, uh, my, I collapse pretty easily on the outside here. 
So there's okay. things you can do to become a better breather. And that's yeah. the problem with sleep. You know, do we're not breathing breathing. exercises help as well? I mean, I think they help to calm you down probably neurologically, mm -hmm. but do they help with, can they help with apnea as well? Like if you're doing inhaling through the nose and like exhaling through your mouth, kind of trying to train that inhalation through the, through the nose. Absolutely. I, I, there's no research on like breathing exercises and sleep apnea, but there is definitely research on breathing exercises to lower the sympathetic tone or the fight or flight in the nervous system. Because remember, sleep is not a conscious process. You're, th whatever we're doing out here in the frontal cortex has nothing to do with sleep. It's all deep brain stuff. So if you are really chilled out and your nervous system's like relaxed and ready to just kind of chill, you're going to fall asleep pretty easily. If you're really hyped up and you're thinking about the next problem, there's next issue, and, there's, and your adrenaline levels are really high, you're not going to fall asleep. Yeah. You're not. So by getting in touch with good, deep breathing patterns, then you're actually engaging the vagus nerve, which is the only way we can really consciously calm down the fight or flight in our nervous system is by getting that abdominal breathing down. And that's why the Iceman's gotten really popular or box breathing or mindful meditation. You really can actively take over your nervous system and quiet it down by focusing on the breathing itself. Mm -hmm. There's something called heart math that's been out for a little while. And it basically has a little uh, infrared uh, sensor on your ear and it'll look at your heart rate variability. And the heart rate variability is gonna tell you, are you relaxed or are you super stressed out physiologically? You know, Mine would be like, no, you live in DC, you're not relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, you'll see there a lot just, of like- Yes, there was just an insurrection at the Capitol a few miles from you, you're not relaxed. <laughs> it's very close in your, in your back memory. Yeah. I'm sure you haven't had enough REM sleep to get over that yet, you know? Yes. Um, so like with CPAPs talking about like treatments, I want to talk about like, you know, CPAPs and sleeping pills and melatonin. Um, I thought the sleep pap the, or the CPAP was like, it felt like a torture device to me. It was the worst thing I had. I wear a mouth guard at night because I grind my teeth and I've been told that that is likely associated with sleep apnea because you grind when you're throat is closing up as if to try to open your airways. Is that correct? Why do people grind their teeth? There's a couple different reasons. One of them is kind of, have you ever heard of restless leg syndrome or? or yeah. You know, so that's something that you do while you're awake where you have to move your legs to get comfortable where there's a cousin to that called periodic limb movement disorder where you kind of jolt your extremities throughout the night and bruxism is kind of a cousin to that. But more commonly bruxism is the end result of a suffocating event. Right. So as you slowly but surely try to breathe against a closed throat, your brain, your body gets more and more scared. And it's like fighting harder and harder to kind of get that air past the throat. And then finally, this gushy air comes out. You have this little arousal or awakening that you won't remember. And that is associated with an adrenaline surge. And that little shot of adrenaline is going to cause the muscles to, you know, clench down as well. And that's where you can get that bruxism. And that's super important because you can actually bite five times harder in sleep than you can when you're awake. So oh most teeth that break are broken in sleep, not yeah. while you're chewing that bubble gum. Yeah, or whatever. I have worn a mouth guard since I was like 23. And, I, you know, I see people, you can visually see people who grind their teeth because their, their teeth are really small. Yeah. They, they all the same flat. Yeah. They're all flat. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so does, um, do things like, like I, you know, when I was doing research for this, it said that sleeping pills were more or less like a blunt tool in, in, in treating, um, you know, sleep issues and that they really didn't simulate sleep in the best way. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, so, so when it comes to sleeping pills, it's an easy way to get someone out of your office. Uh, so because you don't so have to deal with the issue. You don't Just have to deal with the pills issue. at them. Exactly. And that's okay. how it's been for so long, way before we knew anything about sleep. So there's a lot of practice patterns that are happening in medicine that were just something they're, 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 they're perpetuated from old styles of practice before people even knew what sleep was. They're like, well, if you knocked out quick, you were asleep, right? 
you know, you got your barbiturate, you know, and then you got your benzodiazepine, and then you have your antihistamine. So the challenge here is the guidelines are really telling us to work on the, there's a natural rhythm to sleep and wakefulness. And if you can tap into that and acknowledge it and be aware of it, you will in the long term be much more successful at achieving your goal than just throwing a sedative at it, right? And unfortunately, now we are all being more and more uh, honest about the potential side effects of any medication that you're on chronically. And if you look at any of the FDA indications for sleeping pills, they're never indicated for longer than a several week period because of the dependence concerns. Yeah. Right? So if you don't deal with the basics of trying to deal with the underlying reason for sleep issues and insomnia, like undiagnosed sleep apnea or dealing with uh, anxiety or, you know, stress in, in the life, um, then you're going to just be on this vicious cycle and you're going to be unhappy because then those, those crutches will stop working and then you'll yeah. be frustrated, you know, and then you're going to want to put more on top instead of one of them doing well, you're going to take two pills and then three pills. And then next thing you know, again, you're going to be physically dependent on it and it becomes very, very challenging. Yeah. So yeah. under very close monitoring by a sleep specialist, should someone be on a short-term period of sedatives or sleep aids? I do not recommend it in primary care because it becomes too much of an easy fix and you got to get someone out of there quick and make them happy. Um, you should be really doing this with someone who's trained in it and then with them using it only as a short-term aid to get to your ultimate goal. Okay. And what about melatonin? Because I, that makes me feel so drowsy. And I know so, so many of my friends that take it every single night. and and from what I read, it's like, it's something, it doesn't, melatonin doesn't make you go to sleep. It just gets you, your body prepared to go to sleep. Is that correct? And it's right. naturally occurring. So yeah. if you're taking something that's naturally occurring, does that mess up your body's production of it? A lot of folks are worried about that since it is a neural hormone. It, it's something that people go, well, am I going to change the, um, the HPA access, you know, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the adrenal gland access. And the, the bottom line is, is uh, melatonin is, is many, many things. It's a precursor to serotonin. It helps with glutathione um, precursor to, it's a master antioxidant in the body. Uh, melatonin is also an incredibly effective uh, antioxidant. It's like a thousand times more powerful than vitamin C. And so that's why it's so important in, in sleep because you're actually healing a lot of reactive oxygen species related injuries. Um, and it is a, it's a clue. It's a signal to your body to start the process. Remember I told you there's 12 different neurotransmitters involved. Well, half of those actually are involved in turning down the wake brain and letting the sleep brain come into place. Right. And the melatonin is a starting domino there. Right. So it's just one of the dominoes. It's not all of them. And so if someone's doing melatonin and they're 90, they're probably producing less melatonin and usually is, is much, much less than you would think you would need. You only make probably about a quarter of a milligram of melatonin, you know, at nighttime. And then typically, physiologically, you make about a quarter of a milligram every hour for about the first three hours before you fall asleep, right? So if you're going to do melatonin appropriately, you're going to have to start doing it like every hour for the three hours before you fall asleep at a very small dose. No one's going to do that. Yeah. So, so relying on melatonin, I mean, it, it, there's, I don't think I've seen any untoward sort of scientific data that it's going to stop production of melatonin. But if you're going to do that, do that along the lines of all the other interventions that you're going to do for sleep. It's only been shown to be helpful for sleep onset latency. There's actually a medication that does the same receptor as melatonin called uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, Romeltion and um, Rosarum. It's not used very often, but it actually is for sleep onset latency. And more importantly, it's to kind of get you anchored at where you want to go to sleep. Remember, you should be awake for about 16 hours before physiologically your body says, I want to sleep, right? And that's why that habit, that schedule is so important. Because if you turn that 16 hours into 18 hours, and then your brain the next day is like, well, no, you wanted me to go to sleep two hours earlier the night before. And now the brain's totally confused because it's, you remember, it's got those cues from light and food. and Yeah, I know. It's like when I want to stay up and watch Saturday Night Live on Saturdays. And I'm like, but I usually go to bed at like 10 o'clock during the weekdays. So it's, yeah, it, I, can, I can tell on Monday. I think that's why I suffer 
a lot on Mondays because I've messed up my schedule over the weekend. And I've noticed as I've gotten older, it just has become so much more critical to be on a schedule. So in terms of like, I mean, every, I think nowadays everything has CBD in it as a treat, you know, it's a treatment for, you know, back pain and whatever memory and all sorts of things. And now I see a CBD and melatonin used together. Is that something that you recommend or is it again, kind of falling under the category of not really getting to the root cause and take it if you are doing other things as well? Right. I think it depends on how you're applying it. I think it also depends on the state that you're in because some states don't, you know, um, you know, CBD derived from, from hemp products is, uh, I believe, uh, allowed in all 50 states. Um, if you have, if it's derived from a THC producing plant, you know, uh, above a certain percentage, it's not. So n there's not really any active research that I'm aware of that's looking at these CBD combinations. But I do know that CBD is, is an anti-inflammatory. It, it, there is a whole part of our nervous system that's called the cannabidiol, um, the endocannabinoid system, which is part of the pain and endorphin uh, system of our body. And so we don't produce, you know, these artificial products, but we do make CBD-like um, neurotransmitters in the body and, 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 and peptides that will help mitigate the system. So the CBD has been very interesting for a lot of folks because it doesn't have that linkage with physical dependency. It's not a hallucinate. There's no hallucinogenic aspects to it. It's not anxiety provoking. Um, and of course, everything's going to be dose related. I think the biggest thing with CBD is probably going to be the anti-inflammatory effects. And folks will, who have chronic pain, will, that'll awaken them frequently throughout the night. And so if it's being used as a, as a, a pain relief regimen, you're going to get more consolidated sleep. I've seen some patients, because here in Oregon, uh, recreational cannabis and, and um, uh, medical uh, use cannabis is legal. And I've seen patients many, many years ago where they were on a list, whole host of medications for say fibromyalgia, and they felt like a zombie. And on their own, they went and, you know, went to their local dispensary and their bud tender. And, hey, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they got their little mixture and their little compounded CBD and they were able to come off of all their medications. Their fibromyalgia was totally well treated. Their, their insomnia had gone away. And I thought, wow, there is something really to this if it's a reputable source. Yeah. Yeah. Now you have to go to is it a reputable source. Is it what you're wanting? Now, remember. CBD, at, at like if you've seen any studies, which are rare, but there are a couple, or even some, some sort of clinical applications, typically it's like 100 milligrams of CBD. Now, that's an extremely expensive dose of CBD. So, again, is, is that placebo? Is it CBD? Is it a little bit of the both? I mean, I'm, I'd be happy with a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Placebo is just as good, right? Yeah. Placebo is powerful. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, okay. So we I feel like this is just a topic that we could just endlessly discuss because sleep is is so complex. Um, but just kind of tying things up, you know, one statistic that I think is important to note is that every year on the Monday after the springtime switch, you know, the daylight savings, hospitals report a 24% spike in heart attack visits around the US um, and doctors see the opposite trend each fall. Um, the day after we turn back the clocks, um, heart attack visits drop 21% as many people enjoy an extra hour of sleep. So um, I think that this is really indicative of the fact of how important sleep is. Um, what are some things that people can do to have better sleep hygiene beyond the typical things that we hear of, <laughs> you know, turning your TV off and stuff like that, like that, that have really helped for your patients. Yeah. So, so you want to treat uh, sleep as kind of like a, you want to have like a, a sleep friendly getting ready time, like a pre-sleep sort of scenario. And again, it based on what you're concerns are, right? Are you just tired throughout the day and you fall asleep really easily, but you wake up a lot at night or is it taking you hours to fall asleep? And then you feel like you only get your good sleep like the last two hours of the night and you're tired the next day. 
Um, you know, there's, there's lots of different presentations for why you're not happy with your sleep. I'll tell you what, if everyone got three hours sleep and they felt fantastic all day long, they would just go by with three hours sleep, right? But unfortunately we wear down. So if you're that person that sleeps seven hours and feels great, well, obviously you can do what you want to do, you know, but if you feel like you're getting fatigued, you're losing concentration, or, you know, maybe there's a weight loss goal or something, then what you have to do is go back and look at what's your environment like. Is your environment sleep friendly, right? Do you have, number one, do you give yourself the opportunity to sleep enough? Okay. And if not, is it because you're going to bed too late or are you getting up too early? I'm against waking up early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then, then your personal time's like, hey, I gotta stay up a little bit later because it's my my me time to watch this. And I am so it's so funny to me because I always thought, you know, when I started seeing like I grew up in the time of like VCRs and then like TiVo and now there's like DVRs and whatever. And I always thought, well, we could just record it and watch it the next day when we want to, but still people stay up later because it's their time, it's their me time. So that's what's really, really funny here. So we have to get in the habit of getting, you know, having a nice normal schedule of getting to sleep and, and, and waking up. That's going to be really important. Just giving yourself a schedule. Very, very important. And if you don't, if you over, if you get to bed too late, then you don't want to sleep in really because now you've gotten rid of that sleep pressure. You're pushing your, your hat, your, your cycle back again. If you keep that regular wake time, you're going to develop a good enough sleep pressure that within a day or two, you'll be right back on track, falling asleep really quickly. Okay. But, you know, you got to give yourself some quiet the lights down a little bit. You know, don't have all the lights going there. Try not to have the TV right in your face or the iPad or the iPhone. If you're going to use that, use that little um, uh, warming screen software where everything's kind of orangish. Yeah. Because it gets rid of the blue light, you know. Uh, if you're really on point, you can go buy one of those blue blocker glasses. There's all sorts of cool versions now. And after, say, about eight or nine, if you're going to be on your peripheral, make sure you're wearing those. If you're not going to put that little yellow uh, deal on there, make sure you dial down your light uh, brightness very, very low if you're going to use that. What about blackout curtains? I have those. They're fantastic. Yeah. Every little bit of light, your brain sees through your eyelid. And I've gotten to the point where I'm, a, I'm an eye mask wearer. You know, it took me a while, but I, I'm a super big fan of eye masks because there's no light bugging you whatsoever. Um, uh, and, and noise too. You know, if you have a bed partner who's make, making a bunch of noise in your ear, you're not going to sleep well. Yeah. But and sure like people always like laugh at me, but I'm like, I am not opposed to sleeping in this a different bedroom as my steps <laughs> when I get married. I like, and people, you know, maybe not every night, but I like sleep <laughs> and I don't, if there's disturbances, but I mean, is that something that we should normalize? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on? I've seen some really happy couples during the day. And then when it came to talking about their nighttime pro process, the bed partner was like wanting to choke the other one, you know, and it's usually the one listening to the snore. Yes. You know? So, so getting that snoring treated is super important because snoring is just a sign of suffocating. It's the smoke to the fire, right? So if you have your loved one, you want to keep them around, make sure they're breathing well. And when that snoring is gone, you're going to be sleeping well too. Okay. Yeah. Don't assume snoring is a benign process that's normal to sleep because it's not because you would have been a follow, you know, found by that bear a long time ago out in the wilderness. If you were snoring while you're sleeping, you'd have been an easy meal. Yeah. Okay, so snoring is not normal. Mm -hmm. So, um, so obviously the, the temperature of the room is really important too. Uh, your body has to drop a full degree centigrade to fall asleep. Okay. A lot of your enzymes are only going to be appropriately functioning after you've dropped your core body temperature one degree centigrade, not Fahrenheit, centigrade. And so if your room's cooler in general, that's going to be helpful. They have little cooling pads that people wear now. So um, what should you set your, like I set my, my heat to like 71 during the winter time. And what yeah, do you 70, recommend? 71's not bad. I think it, it depends on are you a, a warm sleeper or a cold sleeper. You know, if you're a cold sleeper and you keep the room a little bit cooler, maybe like 68, you know, 69, 70, and uh, maybe your your feet get a little cold, Th throw some socks on, mm -hmm. but keep keep your head cold. That's the important part. Okay. It's a little bit cool. That's okay because that's 
promoting good sleep process. Okay. And then lastly, the most important question of all, because these are my favorite things ever, naps. Yes. What are your thoughts on naps? Naps are fantastic if you do them correctly. So with a nap, typically they need to be of a certain duration. If they go any longer, then you're going to get what's called sleep, um, uh, like a sleep drunkenness, where you will actually end up going into a REM cycle during the day and you will not be able to fully arouse yourself into an alert you know, process. It's going to stick with you. Um, sleep inertia is what they call it. And so you need to sleep just enough to get rid of the adenosine, okay? So the most commonly used drug in the world is not prescribed, it's not over the counter, it's in a beverage, it's called caffeine, okay? It blocks adenosine, and adenosine is essentially a byproduct of ATP, which is what your body uses for cellular, um, for energy, as an energy uh, uh, source, it breaks that bond and gets energy out of it. So as ATP gets broken up into a free adenosine and then the ADP or two adenosine phosphates or adenosine diphosphate, it, you get like a, like a pollution of adenosine floating around in your cerebral spinal fluid and that's process S and your brain's like, I'm tired, I can't think, I can't focus, go, go take a nap, get to sleep, let your sleep drive. So what we do is we take a little sip of caffeine, it blocks that sort of feeling, doesn't get rid of the problem with the smog, but it just kind of makes you just Hurts kind of you ignore up. it. Yeah. Hurts you up, makes you ignore it. So a more natural way to get rid of adenosine would be to take that 20 or maximum 30 minute nap, not too close to your normal sleep cycle. So if you get to get up at six and you go to bed at nine, then you shouldn't be taking any naps later than say two. Okay. And then it shouldn't be any longer than 30 minutes. Um, and that will get rid of all the adenosine that's built up and you'll just, you'll, you'll recover way faster. You'll feel like you're functioning and it will not affect your ability to fall asleep as much that night. Mm -hmm. So a nap that's appropriately timed is super important and it, it's a lot healthier for you than, than pounding down a bunch of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I didn't start drinking coffee despite being a barista in high school and college until several years, like five years ago. And I'm like, why did I do this? This was the worst idea ever. So yeah, trying to unravel that habit. So if someone has um, final question, I said that that was going to be the last question, but this is the final yes. question. Yeah. If someone feels like they have, they're tired all the time and they, you know, what, what do you suggest for them to do? Well, if they're tired all the time, they're probably not um, balancing their nervous system well enough. So they're in this for sort of fight or flight phenomenon and they have to find out why. And nowadays we want to get to the root cause, right? Is it a nutrition thing? Is it an inactivity thing? Is it a stress management thing? Is it a sleep thing? And as you start to talk to someone and you give adequate um, importance to each one of those sections, you'll find out why your body's feeling that fatigue or that lack of energy, because that's really a sign of nervous system management, right? If you're in that relaxed state, then when you need to be on point, you're on point. If you're constantly overdoing it, you're revving, 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 you just, you have no more bandwidth to go any faster than you already are. And unfortunately that's, you know, becomes kind of like the background noise and you just get used to it. You know, it's like smog, it just kind of creeps up on you. And the next thing you know, you have to wear a mask just to even function. So if they're feeling tired, obviously I tell folks, take a step back, look at your sleep. I, again, don't have sleep apnea, but I have upper airways. And before I got that treated and I wear a dental appliance myself, um, I was that guy that had to get nine hours of sleep. And if I didn't, I would be obsessing about why didn't I get it? And I got to get back to it. And if someone messed with my sleep. I'd be really frustrated with them because it was really important because I didn't feel as rested and I wear down really quickly, I couldn't bounce back as quickly. So if there's something disrupting your sleep process, you're going to be more and more like um, protective of your sleep because you're not doing anything about the sleep quality, right? Mm -hmm. So get your sleep quality down, get your sleep duration down, balance your stress, and you'll feel like you're functioning more normally. So that's, that's super important is why are you feeling tired? It's because your energy storage is, is low. Typically, the best way to fill up your tanks is to get enough sleep. Because if you're not sleeping, there's no one doing the oil changes on the body, filling up that tank, and you're running on fumes. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Well, this has been so informative. I really, really appreciate your time. Tell everyone where they can find you or if you want them to find you at all. <laughs> sure, sure. Of course. Um, I am out of uh, Portland, Oregon. I am licensed in Washington and Oregon. Um, I provide telemedicine sleep consultations to folks who want to go through their sleep uh, without having to drive somewhere and fight through traffic. Uh, I'm a uh, unique where I've started doing home testing years ago. So I'm more of a uh, convenience-based provider. I don't want to put you through a lot of hassles because, you know, you, you put more barriers up, you're not going to do anything about it. So sleep testing, I provide with that uh, remotely. I'm also a big fan of auto CPAP. So if someone needs a CPAP, we can get a prescription there. I, I'm, I usually leave CPAP for the last option. There's a lot more things that we've talked about already, like myofunctional therapy, lifestyle, uh, oral appliances or mandibular advancement devices, like you said. There's that new Excite OSA. There's actually a little nasal insert that works like a little baby CPAP valve. So there's no machine. It just it goes inside the nose to make you breathe better through the nose and adds just a little bit of what we call EPAP which is really exciting called Bongo RX because it looks like a bunch of upside down bongo drums. Um, there's a lot of things we can do to get you breathing well and sleeping better remotely. Um, I do a lot of training for dentists and chiropractors and uh, others, other clinicians with a website called Sleep Balance Academy where we provide training and even CE for professionals. So, um, and What's uh, your website? I, my website here in Portland is uh, sleepmedicinegroup.com. Okay. And uh, yeah, my email's on there. You can reach me via email. It's the easiest way. And um, I'm here to help people learn more about how to make their lives better through sleep. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Have yes. a great day and sleep well. If you want to learn more, follow along at tallhungrygirl.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts.